If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The right to express thoughts and opinions, no matter how unpalatable or controversial, has been one of the key components of democratic societies across centuries. Yet, as author Jakob Mashangara explores in his new book, Free Speech, A Global History from Socrates to Social Media, it's a principle that has been attacked and lauded in equal measure. Jakob spoke to Matt Elton about the key moments and figures in the history of a vital, challenging idea. Your book covers this huge expanse of human history and sort of tells the story of a fundamental tension that's run throughout cultures across that span. Can you just talk us through what your book covers and where you see the roots of that tension is emerging, I suppose? Yeah, so it's an attempt to uh, sketch a history of free speech and goes all the way back to uh, ancient times. Uh, As you rightly say, I find a tension between what we might call an egalitarian conception of free speech and an elitist uh, conception of free speech. And the egalitarian one has its roots in the Athenian democracy, so 2,500 years ago. Uh, So if you go to Thucydides' uh, account of Pericles' famous funeral oration, um, he talks about um, how 
the Athenians like to debate things before they they rush into action, and he paints sort of a picture of of, of tolerance between citizens. You also have uh, an orator like Demosthenes, uh, who uh, who mentions um, free speech uh, in in a number of his surviving speeches, and and very much sees this as a paramount value of of the Athenians. Of course. The fate of Socrates shows uh, that uh, the uh, free speech was not an absolute value for for the Athenians. In, in fact, it's never been an absolute value for for any human society uh, ever, not even in our liberal democracies, as we might uh, get, get back to. But that's where I find the origins of free and equal speech, and and you can contrast that with the the Roman Republic, uh, where you have a much more, I would say, regimented, top down, elitist conception of free speech. So you don't have as opposed to the Athenian democracy, you don't have ordinary people being able to speak in uh, in, in popular assemblies, and, and it's mostly sort of an elite that exercises free speech uh, and not what uh, would be considered the mob by people like Cicero and Cato, these type of people who, who saw themselves as an elite who were sufficiently educated to exercise free speech, as opposed to the ordinary plebs. <laughs> So so in that second model, in the elitist model, there is free speech, but there are certain groups of people who get to decide who gets to have free speech. Is, is that right? That is right. And of course, you, I should say that these are the societies that even that, that acknowledge free speech. Then throughout the majority of, of human history, most societies have not acknowledged free speech at all. And so I would say that free speech, of course, is, is uh, when you have authoritarian or even totalitarian states, free speech uh, is not a value at all. These societies are almost defined by their absence of free speech. It would be very difficult to imagine Putin being able to launch the war with the propaganda that went before it if there had been free and equal speech in Russia, I think. His sort of uh, aggression depended uh, to a certain extent on, on the ability to control the public sphere, to, to silence dissent, and to basically limit the public sphere to, to official propaganda. When free speech is possible, has been possible, are those two models something that we can see intertwining throughout the history of humankind ever since that moment? I think so. I think these two conceptions, in various manifestations, of course, are you see this this conflict throughout history, and especially at times when you have new technological or political developments that tend to expand the public sphere, so basically allow new constituencies or into the public sphere. So that could be, for instance, the printing press is a good example. The printing press uh, suddenly allows ordinary people access to to, to, to read and write and uh, and publish, and you no, lo- you no longer have a small elite. Uh, but it could also be political development, so uh, the expansion of the public sphere through democratic rights to uh, the poor and propertyless, to women, to racial and religious minorities, and so on. And what tends to happen at, at such circumstances is that those who serve as the institutional gatekeepers, those who are the elites that enjoy a privileged access to, to free speech, tend to to panic uh, about the consequences of expanding the public sphere. And I think British history is a particularly strong example uh, of that. But even now in our digital age, I think we see that clash uh, very strongly sort of in the way that democracies have sort of fallen out of love with the internet and social media, and even liberal democratic states are sort of rushing to try and impose some kind of top-down control of the public sphere uh, out of a fear of, of what will happen 
if everyone or even the most extreme voices or disinformation and so on is is allowed to flow freely. So there really are echoes, you think, across across that whole of time? Yes, very much, very much so, yes. I wanted to talk about some of the sort of the forces and the figures behind some of these these patterns, if you like. Um, I was particularly struck in your exploration of medieval period in this uh, regard. You mentioned a lot of Islamic thought, which I thought was really striking. Do you think that that culture, those cultures, are particularly interesting to study in terms of free speech? I think the, uh, the Abbasid Caliphate which emerged around 750, is interesting, not because it sort of established free speech. It, it, it didn't. The, these were not sort of democratic <laughs> uh, rulers, uh, and nor, nor were they sort of tolerant based on our uh, standards. But what is really striking is that they, partly because of a lack of an ability to impose sort of strong centralized rules, or so the Abbasid Caliphate and adjacent territories become a, a very fertile ground for these striking polymaths and philosophers. And also there's an, a concerted effort to translate Greek philosophy and science, which then very much uh, helps create uh, a flourishing uh, philosophical and, and scientific environment in, in these Islamic lands, and also contributes to the so-called rediscovery of Greek uh, philosophy uh, in the West later on, sparking the 12th century Renaissance and uh, and so on. So I think uh, it, it is uh, quite interesting. And I think, you know, you have some of the, probably the most radical free thinkers of the medieval period in the Islamic land. So someone like Ibn al-Rawandi and Razi, people who essentially reject prophecy, reject holy books, who uh, extol reason as, as, as sort of the supreme measure uh, of things, uh, which goes much further than, than, than what anyone in the West was thinking at the time, at least from, from the surviving sources. So in that sense, I think the Islamic world uh, plays a, an important, uh, if, if often overlooked, uh, role, even if it would go too far to sort of argue that that in the Abbasid Caliphate, you know, they had a constitutional protection of free speech. They didn't, but they certainly contributed to um, the idea of, of freedom of inquiry and, and philosophical uh, freedom. Moving to sort of Europe around this period, how do ideas of religion and heresy, I suppose, feed into how free, free speech was treated at this time? I have a chapter which I call the not-so-dark ages, but I think there's sort of two... Uh, strikingly contrasting development. So on the one hand, you have the emergence of universities in Western Europe, and these places attract brilliant scholars who very much are interested in in, uh, in pagan philosophy and reasons. So Aristotle, of course, becomes sort of the, the, the game changer. Uh, and initially, there's this attempt by universities and, and also the church to sort of say, have these speech codes, as we might call them today, you know, say, oh, no, we can't have, you know, Aristotelian uh, philosophy because, you know, he's a pagan and that runs contrary to, to orthodoxy. But then it, it comes almost like a competitive advantage for, for universities to be allowed to, to, to use pagan philosophy. And, and some of these scholars are then poached by other uh, universities and it becomes just impossible to keep it out. Um, and, and so I think that during this period, uh, that there's some striking philosophical and, and scientific developments that point towards 
the later periods uh, that, that that we call sort of the scientific revolution and and so on, um, that where we really have to look at, at at the medieval period and sort of the expansion of the permissible limits of inquiry and reason. Of course, at the same time, you also have very strict attempts to regiment belief, uh, uh, orthodoxy. So you have these attempts to root out heresy. So it's one thing to have, you know, a small class of uh, scholars at at these universities who uh, communicate with one another, but it's another thing to have the ordinary population uh, adopt uh, heretical views that might really challenge the authority of church and state. Uh, And so you have what is called the medieval inquisition, and you have inquisitors um, setting up shop around Europe and Germany, France, and and so on, sometimes using rather brutal uh, methods uh, of of imprisonment, of torture, and ultimately, in in certain cases, even the burning of heretics. So the medieval period, in, in that sense, is is, is striking in that, uh, on the one hand, you have this development where where the permissible limits of uh, inquiry and reason are expanded dramatically at, at universities. And on the other hand, you have the church trying to uh, impose orthodoxy on, on ordinary uh, Europeans. So the fear still is that too much free speech might destabilize society. Yeah, and and of course they would not think in the in the terminology of free speech because that that terminology uh, didn't didn't survive the Athenian concepts of free and equal speech did not really survive um, they were changed through the success of, of of Christianity so they wouldn't have recognized a, a conception of, of free speech but I think we you know how much of this is the church sort of trying to shore up its own power and how much of it is genuine fear of because we I, I think it's difficult for modern human beings to understand the extent to which uh, religion dominated the thought of, of people at the time so I, I think that for many of these people who wanted to punish uh, heretics they would not see it as you know as we tend to see it as as something that is on borderline evil but they would see it as doing something for the common good they would mark out these people who were essentially threatening the survival of communities, because they were polluting uh, Christendom with these impure um, heretical ideas that could ultimately lead to divine intervention, to to the wrath of God, and he could uh, then strike down on communities, and and uh, ultimately that would have devastating consequences for 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 innocent people. You mentioned at the start the invention of the printing press in the fifteenth century. Just how seismic a moment. Uh, was that for this story? I think it's an absolute game changer. So initially, the Catholic Church looks upon the printing press as a divine instrument, you know, because it allows the Catholic Church to spread its its message much more efficiently and sort of to, uh, this is orthodoxy. And so, yeah, so it's a divine instrument. But then uh, comes along a uh, an honorary constipated German monk uh, called Martin Luther, who... Uh, Certainly challenges the uh, the the authority of the church and and finds that uh, in fact it's uh, the, the Catholic Church uh, and its teachings misrepresents Christianity, whereas he has identified the true Christianity, and he and no one can even come close to competing with with uh, with Martin Luther. He's so prolific, you know. He's 
industries. He writes a flood of pamphlets, and they're just reproduced and sold throughout Europe. No one comes close to competing to him. And he he revolutionizes the, the way of communicating. You might call it religious populism in the sense that he, he'll write in German rather than Latin. He'll write these sh- short, punchy uh, treatises rather than sort of dry theological uh, treatises. He'll use memes, cartoons um, that that appeal to emotions. Uh, and, and so ordinary people uh, sort of, he, he appeals to their instincts and feelings and, and emotions. And that's, of course, why the 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 Protestant Reformation takes off. But again, it's interesting to look at, at, at Luther because, you know, at, at one point you might say, well, Martin Luther is a champion of freedom of conscience. And to a certain extent, that is true. So when he's he, he's summoned before the emperor uh, and, and and sort of asked to recant, uh, he, he says, well, show me where in the Bible I'm wrong and I'll recant. But no pope or, or, or no Catholic church has the authority to to change my views, unless you know you can point to to where in scripture I'm, I'm mistaken, uh, and that of course is a striking moment in the history of freedom of conscience. But again, it's I think it's important to notice that at this point of, of history, the idea of universal freedom of conscience or free speech was not uh, accepted, and so Martin Luther was not a uh, <laughs> someone who who then said, "Well, everyone should just be allowed to believe whatever they want." So uh, to his, uh, he, he's appalled, of course, by the by the unintended consequences of his reformation because he he puts a lot of emphasis on the ability of ordinary people to read and write. But what happens when ordinary people learn how to read and write? You read the Bible, and suddenly you might not come to the same conclusions and interpretations as Martin Luther himself, and suddenly you have an alphabet soup of uh, of various sects. Some of them. With crazy ideas that Martin Luther, uh, you know, is completely against. You know, you have German peasants uh, rebelling against their princes, something which certainly was not what Martin Luther had had intended. And then he himself comes around to the, to to sort of arguing in favor of censorship, even you know the death penalty for for blasphemy. And towards the end of his life. He writes these ragingly anti-Semitic pamphlets on, on the Jews uh, and their lies, where he argues for sort of the burning of synagogue and so on. But the unintended consequences of Protestant Reformation are huge. But uh, I think we should be careful about, you know, if if we could resurrect Martin Luther uh, and and sort of uh, and, and and take him to 2022, I don't think he would be. Uh, a fan of, uh, of of our modern concept of, of uh, free speech and, and freedom of religion. That was certainly not what he intended. That's so interesting. Um, uh, he's a key figure and another key figure who um, is a sort of concept that you weave throughout the book, interestingly, is John Milton. Can you explain uh, to listeners who John Milton was and what you mean by Milton's curse? Yes. Uh, well, John Milton is, of course, uh, celebrated because he's a great poet, of course, um, but but in, in, when it comes to to free speech, he is the author of uh, Areopagitica from 1644, which is a protest against uh, the uh, reintroduction of licensing, so pre-publication censorship in, in 1643. Um, and it, so Milton's work is often seen as one of uh, one or even the first writing against censorship and in favor of press freedom. I, I don't think that's 
strictly speaking, correct. It, it's become very famous, and, and, and justly so, I think, because it's a very eloquent defense of press freedom, uh, Ariel Pachitika, uh, and many of of the arguments advanced by by John Milton are are evergreen and 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 very much worth uh, repeating today. But as but as with Martin Luther, you know uh, the devil's in the detail. So uh, Milton, being a Puritan, um, was not uh, in favor of press freedom for all. He was not a sort of a universalist conception of of free speech. He was in fact very insistent that Catholics should certainly not enjoy this, uh, nor should, uh, you know, atheists or other with, with dangerous ideas. You know, I, I think you could argue that first and foremost, Milton was concerned about the ability of mainline Protestant sects to debate uh, theological di- uh, and political differences with each other without having to fear uh, censorship. And and so the reason why I, I call it Milton's curse is because we see this tendency throughout the history of free speech, where some of the champions of free speech have advanced uh, free speech, but only for for certain groups or only on certain subjects, or they sort of come around uh, to to making what, from our, from our point of view, seem as, as, as hypocritical stance on, on free speech, so compromising their stance on, on, on free speech. And, and, and unfortunately, Milton is, is just but one example of that. Why does that happen? Why do we find these heroes of free speech who end up compromising that somehow? I think that in a certain sense, intolerance is hardwired into to human beings. So in many ways, I think free speech is a counterintuitive and very difficult principle for human beings, especially when we sense that people hold ideas and express ideas that are seen as dangerous to 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 the values that we hold the most dear or the values that are seen as holding together society that, that are absolutely necessary for, for social cohesion. Of, at one point, that was religious ideas, but, but today, you know, it might be racist or disinformation that we see as, as threatening our modern uh, liberal democratic uh, values and that we then become intolerant, uh, intolerant of. Uh, but but what I think is is interesting is contrasting Milton with uh, the so-called levelers because they are his they're his contemporaries um, and and so so people like Richard Overton and William Baldwin and John Lilburn uh, who 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 actually argue for for, for quite a radical uh, defense of free speech not only uh, against pre-publication censorship but even for the for the for the protection of free speech uh, as as such. Uh, and and in a much broader, uh, I would I would argue that they have a much broader conception of free speech than than John Milton. And of course, John Milton ends up serving as a censor under Cromwell uh, himself, whereas the Levellers end up being uh, imprisoned uh, when they when they criticize the Cromwell regime. So I've I've never quite understood why the levelers uh, have have sort of been forgotten uh, in the history of free speech, whereas Milton is, is seen as, as, as this great champion. I, I think that had the levelers' conception of free speech won back in the 1640s, the, the history of free speech would have progressed much, much faster towards uh, our, our current uh, ideals than, than what was the case. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The idea of free speech... Uh, unites them uh, against the British. Uh, that unity 
does not survive uh, independence, but but at the time it really becomes um, one of the great rallying cries of the American uh, Revolution. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Heading across the Atlantic to the United States, what does the foundation and evolution of that uh, state, I suppose, tell us about free speech? If you go to the 17th century and the colonies, there's not much trace of free speech uh, at the time. So uh, in, in 1671, Virginia's governor, William Berkeley, sort of summed up the prevailing attitude to free speech and education among many uh, colonial elites. So he says, I thank God there are no free schools nor printing, and I hope we shall not have these hundred years, for learning has brought disobedience and heresy and sex into the world, and printing has divulged them and libels against the best government. God keep us from both. So this was sort of the prevailing attitude uh, at the time, and and, and you had rather strict punishments for uh, seditious libel at the time. And, and even in colonies that allowed for, um, for religious toleration, sort of William Penn's Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, uh, and, and Maryland, they did not allow for political free speech. William Penn, who was a political prisoner, essentially, was part of a, a political decision that, that sentenced someone to be, be whipped uh, in the marketplace of Philadelphia. But in the, in the 18th century, I think there, there's a huge change, not least through um, the spread of Cato's letters. So these are th- these letters written by these British radical Whigs. And one of them is uh, Cato's letter number 15, which, uh, and this goes viral uh, in the colonies. Uh, and then in 1735, you have a very famous case called the Sanger case. So, so basically, um, a, a public official in New York tries to have some of his critics imprisoned or for seditious libel. And, and he ultimately drags the, the, the publisher in, in a court, but the, uh, the jury court refuses to convict uh, the publisher, even though under British common law, he was clearly guilty. Uh, and then it becomes basically impossible for colonial authorities to convince uh, American uh, jury courts to co- to convict their, their fellow citizens for, for political speech. So I, I would argue there's a, a culture of free speech that develops in 18th century America, which leads towards the Revolutionary War and makes it impossible for British authorities to really quell the dissent that is brewing and which then explodes. And at the same time, free speech unites uh, the patriot side. Uh, so they see themselves as fighting for, for free speech and against British slavery, which of course is a rather ironic term given that some of them were uh, slaveholders themselves. But, but nonetheless, the idea of free speech 
uh, unites them uh, against the British. Um, that unity does not survive uh, independence, but but at the time it really becomes um, one of the great rallying cries of the American uh, Revolution. As we head into the 19th century, are there any individuals or moments that you think we should highlight or that perhaps don't get the attention they deserve? What I think is most interesting about the 19th century is this huge reaction across uh, Europe against free speech. So, you know, during the Enlightenment in the 18th century, even absolutist uh, rulers like Catherine the Great uh, in Russia, like Joseph II in Austria, uh, like Frederick the Great in, in, in Prussia, sort of uh, saw free speech, uh, or, or at least a limited conception of free speech, as essential for sort of enlightenment values and progress. But then the French Revolution really changes everything. Um, so, so once the French Revolution gets out of hand, you see a huge backlash against free speech. In Britain, of course, you see it uh, already in uh, sort of in the, in, the, in the 1790s when Prime Minister Pitt sort of cracks down on Tom Paine and, and Paineite ideas for, for democratic reform uh, with, a, with a number of, of really draconian laws to limit free speech and, and, and freedom of association. But after the Napoleonic Wars, the new, more reactionary and conservative uh, order is cemented and free speech becomes a, a, a victim very much uh, of that. So, so you have these European states who, who so we have to put emphasis on authority, on tradition on, and religion, uh, and, and no one should be allowed to challenge it. And even, you know, even in, in the UK, which of course does not go to the same lens as, as in Russia, for instance, in, in suppressing free speech, you know, someone like Richard Carlyle, who's this radical who um, who sells Tom Paine's work to, to the lower classes, spent something like six years in total uh, in, in prison for seditious and, and blasphemous libel. And so you very much see this elitist conception of free speech dominating the first half of the 19th century in Europe and even in, in the UK. But ultimately, the idea that you can hold down uh, free speech cannot be sustained. Uh, one, one reason is, you know, technological developments, the, the printing press has become more sophisticated, so it just becomes almost impossible for censors to keep up with the work. You know, you, you, you can't have pre-publication censorship of, of, of all the works uh, that are being published, but also democratic ideals just gain more and more ground. Uh, they cannot be suppressed completely, and so... I would say that the second half of the 19th century is where where free speech um, really becomes integrated uh, into a number of European uh, states that also then uh, veer towards more democratic forms of, of government. So we've, we've got these twin forces of increasing democracy and technological developments running through into the 20th century. Um, is there a, perhaps you could talk about a moment that you see as being um, a particular challenge for for those forces. Yes, um, I think that what I uh, call the Weimar fallacy is a very interesting moment for the history of free speech because it still has huge ramifications for how we look at free speech in the twentieth century in in liberal democracies. And so, um, the, basically, the idea is that 
because the Nazis came to power through democratic means, uh, even if they they never gained an, an absolute majority, if only uh, the Weimar Republic had been more intolerant of intolerance, then perhaps the disaster of of Nazism and and of course the Holocaust could have been avoided. And 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 that argument still uh, undergirds a lot of uh, laws restricting free speech in in contemporary uh, democracies. But I, I try to argue uh, in the book, first of all, let me put out a disclaimer. I don't think that the collapse of the Weimar Republic and the rise of Nazism can be explained through the narrow prism of free speech uh, and censorship. Quite cle- clearly, there are many other factors in play, and, and, and some of those factors are, are likely much more important than free speech and censorship. However, what I show in the book is that the Weimar Republic adopted increasingly draconian laws to limit uh, free speech of uh, extremist movements like Nazis and uh, and, and communists. Uh, for instance, the radio was, was strictly regulated, so it was sort of mostly pro-government voices that could come on. Communists and, and Nazis were not allowed broadcast. And some of the, the most notoriously anti-Semitic uh, Nazis were actually often prosecuted. So take someone like uh, like Goebbels, who later became propaganda minister. Uh, he founded the Angriff, so uh, a, a Nazi newspaper, because Adolf Hitler was prohibited from speaking in a number of, of German states. And Goebbels proudly proclaimed the Angriff to be the most frequently banned daily in, in, in Germany because there were these laws which allowed German states to ban administratively ban newspapers for up to eight weeks if they publish false information or if they attacked public officials or institutions or symbols uh, uh, of the government. Uh, and you also had the most depraved uh, anti-Semitic Nazi, uh, Julius Streicher, uh, who was the editor of Das Stürmer, and he was twice convicted under this law that prohibited uh, religious offense, uh, and he was convicted for publishing these uh, hideous blood libels that were obviously a, a way to to incriminate or try to incriminate Jews, very much in line with his with with his crude anti-Semitism. But what happened was that he was celebrated by his supporters when leaving court, uh, and and so less than a year after he was convicted in 1921 in Nuremberg, his hometown, uh, the Nazis gained uh, a huge increase of votes in Nuremberg. Uh, and so these uh, developments and, and, and many others that I describe in the book suggest to me that the uh, repression and censorship of the Nazis was not an efficient way to try and combat them. Now, it's, uh, I argue that it's interesting to look at the way that censorship was often used but then that at the same time, the government was too weak to really crack down on the violent intimidation of these uniformed violent groups that roam around the streets. Uh, maybe that would have been a, something that they should have spent more uh, time on. And of course, you know, Adolf Hitler back in 1923 should have been put in, in prison for life uh, for engaging uh, in attempted violent uh, coup. But the idea that uh, in democracies you can clamp down on totalitarian uh, movements, I don't think is supported by uh, the actual events of Weimar Republic. And I think that should give pause to the slate of laws that we see in the 20th century, including in the the UK and and, and elsewhere, 
where democratic politicians uh, want to crack down on on racism and and bigotry and so on through restricting uh, free speech. So you think the solution to those kind of social problems is not censorship, but instead other methods? Is that right? Yes, I very much think so. I, I think, in fact, that, uh, and, and this is, of course, one of the other, I think, main, hopefully, main takeaways from the book, is that today there's a dominant strain of thought which sees free speech as a threat to minorities and as of sort of consolidating uh, unequal power relations. And I argue in the book that it's completely the other way around, that free speech and equality are not mutually exclusive, they are mutually reinforcing, and that every single persecuted group or minority has relied on free speech to further their cause and and stake their claim for for tolerance and acceptance, whereas every uh, single oppressive state or authority has used censorship uh, and repression to entrench their dominance uh, of other groups. Uh, And and the examples are, are, are many. So you could take 19th century America. So if you went to the southern states in the 1830s, they adopted some of the most draconian laws in in American history. Some of them formally uh, adopted the death penalty for advocating abolitionist ideas, whereas abolitionists like Frederick Douglass, this great African-American orator who was actually born a slave, argued that the right of of speech is is a very precious one, especially to the oppressed. And uh, he protested vehemently when uh, when these white Bostonians disrupted a meeting in 1860 in Boston where uh, an abolitionist meeting, and, and he said that free speech is the difference between freedom uh, and slavery. And I think that logic is very compelling. But you could also go to take the issue of British colonialism, for instance. Uh, so if you go to India, the Indian Penal Code, a, a number of speech crimes were introduced sort of against sedition uh, and enmity and hatred against uh, different classes. And they were used against Indian nationalists, including Mahatma Gandhi, who was who was sentenced to six years in prison uh, in the early 1920s for, for advocating against British rule. And, and Gandhi actually advocates for a conception of free speech, which was much more speech protective than what uh, was the state of the law in Britain and even in the United States uh, at the time, you know, in, in 19... 21 or 22, when when Gandhi was convicted, uh, he says that, you know, everyone should be able to criticize any authority or institution as long as they don't promote or incite violence. But if you go to the United States at the time, people were being sent to prison for 10 or 20 years for opposing American involvement in World War I. And of course, in Britain, seditious uh, laws were also frequently upheld. And one of the tragedies is that a number of uh, British colonial speech crime laws, both in India but also in Hong Kong, have survived British colonialism and are now being used by. So, in in, in India, it, it, the Modi government, for instance, is using British era uh, colonial era uh, laws against sedition to punish dissent, and the same is is happening in uh, in Hong Kong. So that uh, <laughs> I think shows the danger. Of these uh, of these laws, and and at the same time, I think validates the idea that you know progress when it comes to to tolerance and acceptance of minorities very much depends on the ability of those who are being oppressed to speak truth to power. 
Do you think there are any dangers to unlimited free speech? And what are the challenges of trying to make that work, I suppose? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, I think it's um, we must also be clear about the fact that, you know, free speech comes with costs and harms. It would be impossible to imagine a genocide, for instance, without speech being a component of it. Uh, and of course, you know, you, know, you could take the attack on the, the Capitol on, on January 6th in the United States. Uh, I think it would be very difficult to imagine that taking place without social media. But <clears throat> what I would argue is uh, that when it comes to trying to mitigate those harms, restricting free speech through through onerous laws and censorship is a cure worse than the disease. And that is something that is difficult for human beings to accept because, you know, if there's a if, if there's a danger involved in, in, in certain kinds of speech, the logic next step is to say, oh, well, then we have to ban it. But as, as I've tried to show in the book, there are a number of unintended uh, consequences, uh, harmful consequences of that. Plus, it, it might even be counterproductive and you might not get the, the, the results that, that, that you're aiming for. So we, I think all supporters of free speech should, should acknowledge that, that free speech comes with, with costs and harms. And, and, you know, those harms have become much more visible in the digital age of, of social media where everyone can, can go online and, and spew hatred and crazy stuff. Um, however, I think, you know, when we will look back at, at sort of the infancy of the, the age of social media, I think we will probably look at some of the laws and restrictions being imposed as, uh, as constituting a sort of a 21st century version of elite panic that has dominated uh, the history of free speech and is likely to break out uh, now and again. Finally, uh, in these days of uh, social media and state disinformation, how would you like your book to change how people see free speech both now and in the past, I suppose? Well, I think that, you know, we have a tendency in, in many of contemporary debates about free speech to look at whatever controversial issue it is through our specific feelings uh, about the speech in question. I think that hopefully my book can help people have a more detached and cool approach to the principle of free speech and value it uh, as uh, as such. Uh, and And also sort of being able to distinguish between between tolerance and approval, uh, because the idea that you tolerate certain forms of speech does, does not mean that you approve of it. And then, you know, I think also I would encourage people who, like me, are skeptical about restrictions on free speech, even when it comes to to racism and and, and hatred and so on, to 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 use their own voices to counter uh, hatred. Uh, and, and and dangerous forms of, of speech and provide visible solidarity to those who are the victims of, of, of such hatred. I think that creates a much more compelling case for the beneficial value of free speech. That was Jakob Mashangara. Free Speech, A Global History from Socrates to Social Media is out now published by Basic Books. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Daniel Kramer-Hardish.